Hey, everybody. Robert Polly here uh, to introduce um, not so much an interview as just a chat or actual conversation with Ira Glass that I had a couple of weeks ago. Ira was fixing to pay us a visit here in the Monterey Bay area of California to put on a performance at his uh, cousin Philip Glass's Days and Nights Festival, which takes place out here every September. Uh, the performance is called Three Acts, Two Dancers, One Radio Host. And uh, as the title suggests, it's a collaboration between Ira and a couple of dancers. And we'll hear more about that in the uh, conversation ahead. The topic also uh, naturally gravitated toward our own medium of radio. And we talked about the whole business of presenting oneself via the airwaves, the differences between the on-air Ira and the real Ira. It was a fun uh, conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And I should say that only parts of it have been broadcast previously on my radio show, but uh, this is the first time in this online version that uh, it's been made available in its fullness. And before we uh, go forward, I should explain a tiny bit of context uh, behind my opening remark. Uh, Ira and I had been strategizing about a uh, recording technique known in the radio trade as a tape sync or a double ender. That's where you have two people who aren't in the same place talking by phone, but uh, each recording his or her side of the conversation at close range. And then uh, you take those recordings and you put them together so that the two people sound like they're in the same room. It's a complete illusion, and it is one you are subjected to a lot uh, on NPR radio shows, on This American Life, and other programs. And it's one that Ira and I used on this occasion. And uh, as we were getting ready to do that, Ira told me that the term double-ender always sounds dirty to him. What can I say? The guy has a filthy mind. <laughs> you know, speaking of talking dirty, I listened to your uh, guest appearance on the Savage Love cast uh, last night. I know it's two years old, but it was new to yeah, me. Yeah, I don't – I mean, I remember doing it. It was fun to do. I also remember if we, the topics would come up, I'd just feel like – I, I don't know if I have much expertise on this one. <laughs> the funny thing is you started off, um, and by the way, this is Dan Savage's um, uh, Sex Advice uh, podcast, and you did a guest stint uh, with Dan and uh, responded along with him to uh, listeners, you know, call-in questions. And you started off very measured and um, restrained, and by the end you were like, counseling a young woman to go sell her virginity for uh for money and telling someone else to dump her loser husband you really loosened up as the hour oh, went wow. along that makes me want to do it again yeah and then you were really talking dirty at the end and a lot of people would be surprised cuz your radio persona is so genteel Oh, I don't think of it as genteel. Genteel implies like a level of sophistication. <laughs> I don't feel like that's what I'm playing on the radio. I feel like what I'm playing on the radio is like it's no big deal who I am. You know what I mean? Like, or just, you know what I mean? I just seem like somebody who's just like I don't know. I don't know. It seems more. I feel like we're. It's it's a more conversational show than genteel. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean, I don't know. Well behaved. That's what well I should have said. That is true. I am well behaved. But that's only because the program is edited. So, like all the things that I say that shouldn't be on the radio get edited out, or put a different way. There was years ago, like this is a really this is like ten years ago. Somebody wrote an article uh, about the radio show, and there's a little section of it which is about like uh, people having crushes on me, 
and um and and the reporter like quoted some women who had shown up for a live show that we had done in New York City and the reporter then went to my senior producer Julie Snyder and asked her about like the idea of like women having crushes on me and Julie said you know I love my husband at the time, our, oh, sorry, for, for me, this story to make sense. At the time, our staff was me, and there were th- all three producers who were not me were women. Okay, that was a very brief period. It's now equally men and women, but but during that period, it was me and three women just for a couple of years. And um, and Julie's like, you know, I love my husband, but if every word he said were edited by three women, I would love it a lot more. <laughs> Oh, now I know what to say next time uh, this happens to me. I think I told you this anecdote because I interviewed you once before, but I went to a live event once and I was recording it for radio and a young woman uh, saw that I was recording it, asked me what I did. I said I was doing it for public radio and her eyes widened and she said, do you know Ira Glass? And I almost had to prop her up because she was swooning, just mentioning you and uh, getting a contact high by being near someone who might know him. Well, next time I'll say, uh, you know, Ira Glass, you know, the Ira Glass, you know, (laughs) (laughs) completely manufactured. He is a completely, yeah, exactly. I'm a studio creation. Well, Ira, let's talk about um, three acts, two dancers, one radio host, because that's what we're here to plug today. Uh, You're going to be performing it very shortly, actually, in, in, in the next week or so. Uh, in Carmel, I know you've done it before, but this will be the first time out here. Yes. Uh, and it's your, your cousin, Phil, who has sort of cut you in on this, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. his performance. Yeah. yeah. And I'm excited to be in his festival. That's, I, 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 that'll be super fun. Well, it was because of him that you first did this, right? At Carnegie Hall? It's more like like it's. I wish that it was as as straightforward as that. But in fact, if the facts the the actual facts are, Monica, the choreographer, and Anna, the other dancer, and I were were had worked up one piece just to see is this even possible to combine a radio story and a dance piece, and Philip does every year a benefit uh, at Carnegie Hall for for a charity. That, that he likes. And, and so that was coming up and he just needed to fill 10 minutes. And so, and so he called me and he's like, you got anything you can come on stage and like, you know, talk about for 10 minutes. I was like, I, in fact, I have a, like a 10 minute dance piece that I, that I'm working on. And he was like, great. And so we were in this really weird show, which was like Philip Glass and Patti Smith and Tibetan monks and a rapper and like a, a progressive band from Brooklyn and so that that was the first show we did. Is that our very first time ever trying this on any audience was Carnegie Hall, and since then it's been a successively smaller and less important set of venues that we've done it at. Um, and so and so and Carmel will be next. Oh, do you realize? No offense to Carmel. That sounds really it's a beautiful, good. Beautiful, beautiful theater. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've been in that theater. I've, I've given a talk in that theater. I love that theater. And I'm looking forward to going back to that theater. But you know, like it's it's like a beautiful little church. It's not Carnegie Hall. All right, nice recovery there, Ira, after yeah. saying uh, continually less significant venues culminating in Carmel. I mean, what is the name of that? What is the name of the theater? I don't remember its formal name. It's the Su- just, Sunset Cultural Center. There's no saying, like, how do you get to the Sunset Cultural Center? <laughs> Practice. You know, like, that's not a joke. It might be. You don't know. You don't know. Cabby, that's what I'm going to say when You're- I get into the cab at the airport. <laughs> 
take me to the Sunset Cu- Cabby. How do I get to the Sunset Cultural Center? And if he says back practice, then I'm calling <laughs> I'm calling KUSP so they can put me on the air and we can just cut into whatever's going on to give that news to KUSP listeners. Please let us know. Absolutely. So this is like some hybrid thing, though. Uh, you've got two dancers, um, uh, and you've got yourself, and you you talk and you dance, right? Um, we don't talk about uh, whether I dance publicly or not. I can say that um, that that I talk during the show, and uh, and the dancers dance. I think if anybody who's showing up to see me dance, they will be sorely disappointed. Well, it is um, said that you bust a few moves at one point. Again, a secret. Okay, I blew again, it. It's not a secret. I just don't talk about whether I do or not in public. But I will say, like uh, the what the show is is it, it's it's a combination of of radio stories and dance. And and I wanted to do it because I saw these dancers perform. I saw them do a show, and I was just like, there's something about what they're doing that feels exactly like the radio show I'm doing, even though. They use no words. Like my radio show is all words. Their thing has no words, but somehow they're getting across the same feeling. And specifically, like I felt like they're 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 entertainers. They're incredible. They're out for fun. They're total entertainers. But also, there's like a documentary quality to the work they're doing, where they're documenting real feelings and moments. And it's not it's not like a sort of preciousy. I mean, I I love dance, so I want to be careful what I say here. But like, it's it's not. I feel like a lot of people hear it's a dance show and they feel like oh, it's going to be an already hard to understand thing. And it's so the opposite of that. Just like the radio show, it's just like. You, you don't wonder what does the story mean. Like you, they're out for fun, and um, and I thought let's work together, and then we try to invent ways to combine what we do. And and you say it involves some radio stories. So are these stories that people would have heard on This American Life? Honestly, you'd have to be, a, you know, a really really dedicated listener to have heard these particular stories. Most of them are very old stories from the first few years of our show. So we're talking about the nineteen nineties. I remember um, them. Yeah, you you remember them? I do. I I, rem- I was an early listener, actually. Uh, well, hopefully you haven't heard them in the last fifteen years. So so I'm assuming that no one has heard these since the early days of the Clinton administration slash the late days of the George H W Bush administration. Um, I have also heard, and maybe again, I am letting a cat out of the bag that you would rather keep in the bag, but that there's some revealing bits about. Um, not just the two dancers, but you also? Yeah, I mean, that's not a secret, actually. I mean, at some point, we, we thought, like, what is the show going to be about? And, and, and some, of the dan- some of the dances and pieces are about, are about the job of being a dancer. Like, it seemed like that, that seemed like a logical thing where I could get people to tell stories and get them to tell stories. And then they could figure out things that we could look at and dance while those stories happen. And then, honestly, like, that became, like, a certain percentage of the show. Like, stories about what it's like to have this as a job. And for me, as somebody who didn't know much about, like, what it's like to be a dancer... They, it's interesting. It's really, really interesting and really different from other jobs. I mean, like the day-to-dayness of it. So it's, you know what I mean? Like, like what is their job job? Like, what, <laughs> you know, and, and so, and so and then once they were talking about themselves, realized like, oh, I should, I should be talking about myself too and my life. And so, and so you get to know them and you get to know me. Like, yeah, I talk more personally in the show than I do over the radio, which actually feels appropriate. Like it feels better to be saying something in a theater with people right there. There's it, weirdly like radio as intimate as it is, the notion that you're standing right in front of people, you're there in the room. Um it feels bearer. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you are a master of seeming as though you're actually talking to human beings uh, on your radio show when, in fact, you're pretty much alone in a windowless room, I'm thinking, uh, and with, yeah. with a microphone, right? Well, that's everybody who's on the radio. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Except, I know. you know, if you're not doing a call-in <laughs> show, like, and you're narrating, if basically anybody who's narrating a script on the radio, like, when you know, when the hosts of All Things Considered are reading the intros to the stories, yeah, they're pretending that they're talking to a person, but really they're just in a, you know, in a soundproof room talking. And so similarly with me, when I... When I'm performing the radio show, I mean, I try to talk like I'm talking to a person, but I'm not really. It's all fakery. You, um, I've I've read enough of uh, your comments, you know, public comments over the years to know that you have a lot of admiration for, or maybe even a little envy of, the, like the great uh, radio gabbers, you know, like Howard Stern, even uh, Rush Limbaugh, and. Uh, I don't know, maybe these days Mike Pesca. You love those guys. You can really talk a blue streak on the radio. Yeah, I do. I admire them. And I, and I respect the craft of it. And uh, Rush Limbaugh, it's a really, it's a very listenable show. You know, like, like you know, whatever your politics are, like, he puts on a good show, that guy. And that is a really hard job. It's a really, really hard job. And, and Howard Stern is is he's a kind of a radio genius like like the even the design of that show where he's created a set of characters who you get to know over time and a lot of the drama of the show is he puts this set of characters who you've come to know and some of them you really love and some of them annoy you like he basically puts them into one situation after another invents games brings people in they try things they bet on stuff they make stuff up like basically so that so that all the characters can go through this little drama together it's it's cunning and 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 yeah i mean i i i i understand and appreciate what they're doing even though you know a lot of people would say oh that's lowbrow shit compared to what you do i don't i don't see it that way yeah. i really don't i really don't i mean i mean yeah i really don't has it influenced you have those guys influenced you I mean, there there are moves that, that we I've definitely stolen from Howard. There have been story situations where I was just like, "How do how do we do this?" And then I think like, "Well, how would how would Howard do it?" And um, <laughs> I mean, I could tell you like one in particular. We did this thing years ago on this very like I feel like is a very entertaining, very interesting episode of the show that that we did about testosterone. Yeah, yeah. And 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 basically, we had a bunch of very dramatic stories about people whose testosterone levels either either you know were artificially spiked with drugs or, or went down for whatever reason, and how their personalities change. And the personalities really did change. And so it's amazing to think like, you, and, and the degree to which their personalities changed was, was shocking. It really is shocking. And, um, and, so, and they have really amazing stories to tell. And the, to frame it, the staff, all of us on the radio staff at the time, we all got our testosterone tested to see who had the most testosterone <laughs> and 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 we thought well what's the right way to stage this and and we did it the way howard stern would do it which is you bring on all your characters so you hear the whole staff then they all come into the studio on mic everybody's talking to each other and we all basically speculate about who's going to have the most testosterone like the way that howard does it is you have the before and so everybody talks about who has the most testosterone and so you have all the speculation you get to know everybody's personality and all that everybody kind of comes on stage as a character and then you, everybody gets tested, 
And then there's the reveal as to who has the number one. That happens on the air. And then everybody talks about it afterwards. Like, what does it mean that this person is number one? Oh, I thought that they would be number three. I thought you would be number one. How could they possibly? Everybody sort of takes it apart afterwards. That is the, that's the Howard Stern format for a lot of situations. And that's what we did. I remember that one. I can't remember who had the highest score. And not oh, the- I remember quite well. It was Julie Snyder, my senior producer. Really? Is that true? I can't remember. Th- I didn't remember well, that. Well, she was number one among the women. And then among the men, it was David Rakoff, um, who, who, who as one of our straight, one of the straight guys on the staff pointed out, is like, it seemed unfair. He's gay <laughs> and Canadian, which, which I, I feel like I don't want to get into stereotypes and I know how potentially offensive that is. So just I want to get in front of that. Like, but anyway, like, yeah, like one of the straight guys on the staff says on tape, like, it just, it just seems right. Even Rackoff was just like, I don't get it. I'm gay and Canadian and a Jew. Um, he's just like, don't all those things counterindicate, you know, the high testosterone that I supposedly have. But, but, but there you go. He was number one. I've heard that you had a big influence on Howard Stern, too. So it works both ways. Boy, that is so not the truth. He, like, I feel like every now and then I've written something about him for the New York Times and they'll talk about it on their show. And he, he's utterly, he, it's utterly clear. He has no idea who, who I am. Oh, is really that right? No really? Yeah, yeah. Really? Does that hurt? No, I don't need him to know who I am. <laughs> I really don't. Like I, I, our relationship, my relationship with Howard Stern is exactly as it should be. I feel like he's amazing. <laughs> I'm glad he's out there. I hope he doesn't quit. Um, have you, you, you say you reveal some things on stage, um, during the uh, three acts, two dancers, and one radio host performance. Um, you know, when you say it like that, it sounds like I'm going to reveal like where, where Al Capone's fortune is in or something. <laughs> like, I just talk about myself in a personal way. Okay. Uh, uh, you talk about yourself in a personal way. And I'm thinking or like that- the way you say it is like is I'm, I'm going to admit to a murder or something. You <laughs> well, know see, I, mean? I don't like, know. I just talk about myself in I a personal know. way. I don't know if there's big revelations. Hey, I'm, I'm plugging your show here. I'm building okay. suspense. But, you know, it's funny. You, you've only done that a couple times on This American Life. And since I have a long memory- uh, I can remember one. Uh, oh man, it had to have been in the '90s, uh, where you you were like breaking up with a girlfriend and you documented it, right? Something like that. I mean, there's a story that I told in like the it's in like one of the first in the first year of the show, long before um, long before I was with my wife uh, uh, about about uh, somebody who I had broken up with and. Uh, and seeing her again and being just friends. And uh, and it's the story of seeing each other again for the first time since we were just friends and trying to be just friends and how awkward that is. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that was the last I heard of any stories on This American Life uh, with you as a central figure up until the one about you and your dog and your wife's dog, Piney, uh, a year or two ago. I mean, I think that that's true. I think, I think, I think dramatic things aren't happening to me that are dramatic enough to be a story on my show. <laughs> like honestly, like, like, like I, things are going fine with me. My life is going fine. But like, when dramatic things happen, like my own wedding, like it's not. It's just exactly like anybody else's wedding. You know what I mean? Like, like something spectacular would have to happen for it to be worth me talking about on This American Life. And so there isn't much reason to. That said, occasionally something will come up in in an interview about something where, like, in a conversation with somebody, I'll, you know, there's a moment to talk about something from my life. And I do. Like, I've talked about my marriage and I've talked about other things in, in interviews that have gone on the air. Yeah, I didn't mean to imply that you're secretive, but it occurred to me that maybe 
you tried it once back, like you say, in the first year of the show and decided, nah, you know, there, there, I don't want to do more of that. And then the, the dog one, which was quite good. I really enjoyed it. Um, produced by, was it Nancy Updike? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I read uh, that you, there was a little bit of like uh, blowback from that one that um, <laughs> no, some no listeners blowback. didn't. <laughs> some, <laughs> well, the blowback, yeah, I guess there was blowback. You know something? I'm saying no, but the answer is like, yes, there was blowback. I think what happened is, is we, like one of my producers insisted that like, no, your situation with your dog is so weird. It's a story. And I was like, this is not a story. This is just a person with their dog. And she's like, no, no, no. You don't understand how weird it is. And let me do it. Let me interview you. And she did, and we put it on the radio, and America agreed with her. And and when we put it on the air, people felt like I was making some choices about caring for my dog that they themselves would not make, and people were quite vocal about that. Well, this includes long train rides to procure exotic meat because of Piney's you know, special needs. Um, but I personally liked it. It was a story about attachment and and what you do for things that you love. You know, at least that's how <laughs> yeah. I took it. I, I think, like, yeah. I mean, basically, our, our dog has some stomach issues and some other issues where where his body kept sort of shutting down with something called pancreatitis and and some other problems. And he nearly died a few times. And the vet put him on a on a on a diet where we cook for him, and it's always one protein and one starch, and then some additives and stuff. And 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 he, he after a few months he'll get allergic to the protein and so you have to switch to a different protein and after working our way through, you know, uh, you know beef and and uh, pork and uh, and chicken and tuna and chickpeas and rabbit um, and bison I didn't even know bison existed I thought they were extinct <laughs> but apparently that's a dumbass thing to think. After moving through all those, then like we ran out of proteins, you know, and sort of like the, then then it's, then we were importing, you know, you know kangaroo meat from Australia for eight months, and you know, and and and, uh, and you know, yeah, and and there was just one place in 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 New York City where I live where you can get it, and it's a you know Ottomanelli's all the way out in Queens, and I would you know ride forty five minutes there on the train to pick up like this heavy bag of like kangaroo meat that they have imported, you know, and just like I don't know, you just. Anyway, so people heard that, and people were just like, "You should kill that dog," or, or, or and I think also it just made us seem like very rich people too. Like it, it just seemed like if you're blowing a hundred bucks a week on your dog's food, like that's not a proper choice for an adult. Yeah, and, and by revealing little bits of your own personal life, you know, you you lose that crowd—the crowd who thinks dogs are too pampered, you know—and. Uh, if you did it every week, sooner or later you'd lose larger and larger segments of your audience. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Like, like it's funny because it really, it really was a lesson to me in 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 why most on air personalities reveal very little because because you want to be a blank cipher into which a blank cipher into which people can project the thought, oh, we're just alike. And I feel like what I did is I announced to a lot of people, here's a way in which we are not alike. And I think it was really not welcome information and and also i think people are really judgy yeah yeah it's really interesting that you with a, you have a very distinct personality but you do manage to stay remarkably neutral in your show you know you're you're very broad-minded uh uh i have read that you're an atheist but you do stories on religion that are very respectful i think you know Thanks. uh for instance um just one of many examples 
Um, so, you know, by, by even letting the world know that you got married, I bet you lost some, I don't know, some, some, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> some illusions. I don't, think, I don't think it's like when Elvis got married. I really don't at all, but okay. I think we, I lost nobody. Well, well, mostly my point is that people are projecting stuff onto you and I'm kind of curious what they must project onto you. I don't know. I think you come across as a very understanding, wise person, uh, while issuing very few opinions, you seem to take it all in. You know? <laughs> that is how you seem like a wise person, is by issuing very many opinions, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, so I, I'll, I, I know you how busy you are. I've read how insanely busy you are, so I feel guilty already. But. No, no, no. It's not that I'm insanely busy. It's just, you know, no, no. I, but, I mean, I have an edit to get back to, but I, yeah. I, what, what, yeah, what else? And I don't want to impair uh, any editing, because your show comes on right before the show I host. So if it's fucked up, then... I suffer then too. Then you're, yeah, 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 that's a good point. Yeah, no, no. Um, I'm curious to know what you, how you think uh, this American life has changed over the years. It's coming up on its 20th anniversary. I mean, when we started, like the mission of the show consciously was to apply the tools of journalism to stories that were so small and personal that that journalists wouldn't have touched them. And uh, and as the years have gone on, I and and my fellow producers, you know, we've we've just gotten more interested in covering the news basically doing the news in our style. We find characters and scenes and emotional moments and funny moments. And so it feels just like the sort of great yarns that you're hearing in, in the regular shows. So that's one change. And then the other big change is that we have money. Like when we started, we, you know, it was just so like, you know, I took a huge pay cut. Well, not a huge pay cut because I wasn't making any money anyway. But like, you know, it was just really, really um, bare bones. And it was four of us who made the show and, you know, we paid very, very little to contributors and didn't have much money to pay for travel. Whereas now, because the show's popular enough and, and, and because people donate, um, you know, now, you know, we have the luxury of being able to, you know, have a reporter spend a month on a story or, or in the case of something like Harper High School, there was a high school in Chicago which had 29 shootings in a single year. We sent three reporters in there for five months. You know, on and off, but 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 you know that's a huge, that's a you know for any newsroom in the country that would be a huge bit of resources. If you think about it, like it's three people, you know, and and like that would have been impossible for the first fifteen years of the show. Whereas now that option is open to us because, in a way, partly because of the podcast, because the pop podcast is popular. And it brings in money we never had before from from underwriters who who pay to get their names on the podcast and and from podcast listeners who donate. Like that's really, it's allowed a level of ambition that was impossible before. You guys, um, this was widely publicized. You guys cut your ties with uh, PRI, Public Radio International, who was your distributor, right? Uh, yes. Earlier this year, so you're on your own in a sense in terms of raising money. How's it going? Well, this was the big question. Like the one of the big things that PRI did for us is that they sold underwriting. You know, those little things at the end of the show where we say, you know, our show brought to you by Lagunitas Brewing Company and and you know the other underwriters. And so so PRI were the ones who who sold those, and uh, and were very very good at it. But, but but and so when we split off from them, the question was, would we be able to do it on our own as well or better? And we were betting on better. We were hoping for better. Um, we thought maybe there was money to make that 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 they weren't making for us, but we really didn't know. And and fortunately, so far, so good. Like like it's been 
five or six months now and and uh, and we're fine like we're, we're making enough revenue and you know there's no worries here great hey ira it's been wonderful talking to you and uh you know i'm glad things are going well for the show thanks so much thanks so much if you're there uh, at the show come and say hi and i certainly would have uh, were it not for a radio show i had to work on uh, that radio show being the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. And by the way, the uh, performance that Ira was talking about, Three Acts, Two Dancers, One Radio Host, is on tour through 2015, maybe coming to a theater near you. You can find out more at their website, Three Acts, Two Dancers, One Radio Host.com. I'm Robert Polly. Bye for now.